Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are recording late on Sunday night. It is almost 1 o'clock in the morning right now after the Patriots go down to the Miami Dolphins. They fall to 0-2 on the season. We're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ James White. In just a little bit, we'll get his take on this one and why the Patriots cannot run the football. James White certainly has experience running the football in the NFL, so we will get his take on this thing because it is really aggravating to watch this team's lack of an ability to actually put together a running game when they have Ramondre Stevenson on the team. So we'll get into all that. The first thing you're going to hear is right after the game, we popped on our FanDuel TV show and gave you my opening take to this thing, and I was not very happy about that. You'll hear this next. Where we start is with a disappointing loss for the Patriots as they fall to the Dolphins at Gillette Stadium. They are 0-2 on the season, both losses coming at home, which is not ideal going forward for this Patriots team. And they were ever so close. I was watching the end of that game, and I felt like Cole Strange originally had that first down when he gets the lateral from Mike Isecki, but unfortunately, he's just a little bit short. And after you watch that replay, it did feel like He was short. It did feel like they got the right call, but you did feel like the Patriots at least were going to have some drama. At least we did have some drama, I guess. But the Patriots are going to have a chance to win this game at the end. Unfortunately, they didn't have that. And it feels like right now the Patriots have become a team that is just competitive, right? They're a team that, hey, if you're a good team, it's going to be a big test, but you feel pretty confident you're going to win the game. Right now, what the Patriots are to the good teams in the NFL They're a sparring partner. Yeah, the Eagles had some issues in week one, but they still won the game. It was a good lesson they learned. The Dolphins, they learned a lesson. This is what the Patriots are right now. They're a sparring partner for good teams in the NFL. Unfortunately, this is just where they are because they can't get out of their own way. Good teams don't continually make big-time mistakes, and what we've seen with this Patriots team, they continue to make big mistakes. And I thought, I felt good after week one. I'm like, oh, that's not going to happen again. They're not going to have all these careless issues. And once again... What we saw is this Patriots team, they continue to shoot themselves in the foot. And you go back to just think about this. Because of all these early mistakes they make in these games, they dig themselves holes. And you look at it, the Patriots in the first quarter this year, two first quarters, they haven't scored. 
Go back to last year, one of the same issues this team had. They averaged 2.7 points per game in the first quarter. That was 30th in the NFL. It's very difficult to continually be working from behind in this league, especially when you're not a high-octane offense like the Buffalo Bills with Josh Allen, like the Kansas City Chiefs with Pat Mahomes. This is not who the Patriots are. They need to play on schedule, and they keep ending up playing off schedule because of these early mistakes. I mean, just think about the negative plays and the issues they had that killed drives. You go to the first series of the game. Ramondre loses two yards to start off that drive. And then what happens? Mack is sacked by Chubb where the Patriots can't pick up a blitz. And then you get no gain from Ramondre, so you have to punt the ball. So right away, you have a three and out because you can't pick up a blitz. Then you go to the second series of the game where the Patriots are marching down the football field. And Demario Douglas, the rookie who showed signs in training camp and he was still out there returning punts after the fumble, but he fumbles the ball, right? That was, you were at the Miami 29. So right then and there, that's at least a 10-point swing, right? Where you're at least getting three points there. It could have been seven points. So it really could have been a 14-point swing because Miami goes down the field and they take a 10 to nothing lead. And now this has become a massive problem for the Patriots, right? The first two games, you have now given up 13 points off of turnovers if you're Bill Belichick's team. In week one, it was the Mac pick, of course, the pick six, and the Zeke fumble, which set up a touchdown as well for that Cowboys team. 13 points off turnovers in the opener because, fortunately for the Patriots, the Eagles missed an extra point in that one. But remember, the Eagles scored 25 points in the opener. So more than half of their points came off the Patriots' turnovers. This is what I keep coming back to in terms of the mistakes. This is why the Patriots aren't beating good teams because good teams don't make as many mistakes as these Patriots teams do or as this Patriots team is doing right now. So, and you think about just the missed opportunities, continuing on that. Third series of the, of the game, you're driving. Cole Strange picks up a holding penalty. Pat's headed at the 32 and that makes it a first and 20. So then, okay, you pick up a couple of yards, but the Patriots at that time, you have to settle for a field goal, right? Because you're dealing with a situation where you pick up a holding penalty, which puts you behind the chains. And then you go late in the game. It's 17 to 10. Christian Gonzalez, who played really well in this game, has an outstanding interception where he picks off, of course, Tua, where Tua is looking down the field for Tyree Kill. But after that, Mack an incompletion to Juju, who just gets absolutely rocked. And then the very next play, Mack is sacked by Van Ginkle, who Kelvin Anderson is beat on that play. You lose 10 yards. Eventually, you have to punt the football. Kelvin Anderson is an undrafted guy that signed with the Patriots. He was waived by the Patriots. He was claimed by the Jets. He was waived by the Jets. He was signed by the Broncos. And now he's here with you because of some of the depth you don't have in terms of the offensive line and some of the injuries you're dealing with when we talk about Trent Brown and Riley Reef right now. So this is a journeyman. These are the situations that the Patriots find themselves in because after that, Mostert goes down and he scores a touchdown on the very first play of their next drive. He makes it 24 to 10, right? So you have a chance at 17 to 10, your rookie makes a huge play. And instead of you moving forward, you give up a sack and the Dolphins come right down and score. They make it a two possession game. And even on the final series of the game, right? The Patriots almost get that first down. It was very close with Cole Strange. But why were they behind the chains to begin with? Mack was sacked by Bradley Chubb to make it second and 18. Vidarian Lowe was beat. He was a six-rounder for the Vikings in 2022. He played four games for them last season. The Patriots had to trade for him right before the season began because of the injury to Riley Reef, where Reef was playing guard, where we know he's a tackle. He's not a guard, but he was playing guard during preseason. He gets injured. 
And the Patriots, this is what they did with the offensive line, right? You have Riley Reef on IR. Trent Brown, unfortunately, is dealing with an injury right now, a concussion. So you're playing two guys in Kelvin Anderson and Vidarian Lowe that aren't starting tackles in the NFL. That's not who they are. This is after last week you started two guards that shouldn't be starting. And this sort of brings me to this whole other issue with this Patriots team is right now, you look at this team, they can't run the ball consistently. And (laughs) this should be a team where they're not going to be this high-powered, high-flying passing attack. They should have a good offensive line. That should sort of be some of the ethos of this team is, hey, we got to be good up front to protect Mac Jones and to run the football. And the Patriots... In the offseason, they went bargain basement hunting in terms of their offensive line, and it's really costing them right now. The Patriots couldn't run the ball at all. Now, some of the numbers, they were still under four yards per carry. Some of the numbers looked better at the end of the game because the second to last series, the Dolphins were inviting the run because they thought you were going to pass the football, and they were like, all right, if you want to run the ball, go ahead. But you go back to last week, the Chargers ran for 234 yards against Miami. The Chargers ran for 5.9 yards per carry. The Patriots could do nothing, and this is sort of an illustration of the offensive line that in week one, Bill O'Brien hid some of the issues this team had by Mac getting rid of the football quickly. That's what I think right now when you just go empty, that's probably the best situation for the Patriots. But week one, the Patriots were 30th in pass block win rate from ESPN's metric, and they were 26th in run block win rate. If you go back to last season, they were 15th in pass block win rate and 32nd dead last in run block win rate. And it looks that way, right? You look at the first half of this game, the Patriots had 12 rushes for 31 yards, 2.6 in terms of the average there. If you just look at the running backs, Zeke, five carries. He had one carry for more than four yards out of those five. Four were for three yards or less. Ramondre Stevenson, six carries in the first half, two for more than four yards, Four of them for less than three yards, including a couple negatives in there. And then you go right to the start of the third quarter, right? Where you have a pitch to Stevenson, he gets outside, he picks up nine yards. That's the only way they're going to pick up yardage is if they get to the perimeter because they can't block it up front. And then you think about Mac Jones. Okay, he sneaks for nine yards. They find Parker for a nine-yard gain. Stevenson, no gain. And then he loses three yards, right? So right then and there, you're in a situation, you're trying to pick up a first down. Stevenson instead loses three yards on a pitch. Holland doesn't get blocked whatsoever. The Patriots trying to get to the perimeter because they're in a situation where they know they can't run in between the tackles, right? So then you have to punt after that series where you went from second and one to having to punt. Second and one at the 43, your own 43, then you have to punt the football, right? These are the issues that this team has right now is the offensive line, which we said before the season it was going to be an issue for this team. And we've seen it through the first two weeks. It may have not been as glaring in week one, but in week two, it was certainly glaring for this team where they cannot run the football against a team that we just saw last week couldn't stop the run whatsoever. And then you start to think about some of the injuries piling up in the secondary, which really that was evident at the end of the first half where... You had no Jonathan Jones, which was unfortunate because Jonathan Jones has been really good historically against Tyreek Hill, who actually really wasn't a problem in this game. But then you also lost Marcus Jones in the game. So you're down to a bunch of guys you don't want to play, right? So, for example, that last drive where they get points at the end of the half, a touchdown, Tua finds Craycraft for 22 yards on Jalen Mills. Then he finds Smythe for six yards on Sean Wade, a guy that shouldn't be playing. Mills should not be in coverage, right? He's... Should not be covering a guy like Craig Kraft. He should be a guy that's playing almost like a free safety role. 
Then he finds Craycraft again to Tua on Miles Bryant. Again, shouldn't be out wide. And then he finds Berrios on Wade 18 yards. So what Miami did is what Brady used to do. Anytime there's a young corner or a corner that's not very good in the case of Wade or in the case of Bryant, he's going to pick on those guys. They went down the field. They scored at the end of the half because the Patriots are reeling from a secondary perspective. And then you think about, well, it would have been different if you had some of those guys, but this is sort of how it goes in the NFL. So yes, you were able to, even though you were missing some secondary guys, they burned you on that one drive at the end of the first half. You still stayed in it. And unfortunately, you couldn't make up for some of the opportunities you were given because of the turnovers we mentioned earlier and because of sacks you were giving up, the offensive line issues that we pointed to at the beginning of the season. If you want to take a positive from this one, I would definitely look at Christian Gonzalez, who, of course, we mentioned the interception. That was huge. He certainly competed against Tyreek Hill. Hill really had an underwhelming game where you look at Hill on this one, and Belichick has historically done a good job on him. Just five catches for 40 yards and you lost the game. You figure you limit him to 40 yards, you win this football game. The Patriots, unfortunately, didn't. But now they're in this reality where teams to start 0-2 and make the playoffs since the merger in 1970, 39 of 406, that's 9.6%. Yeah, the Bengals just made it last year, but that's the Bengals with Joe Burrow, a guy that went to the Super Bowl the previous season. So unfortunately, this just feels like where the Patriots are right now. They're Plucky, they're competitive, but they're not good enough to beat good teams because they cannot get out of their own way. And because the offensive line, we thought it'd be an issue entering the season. It's been an issue through the first two weeks. No way around it. All right, coming up next, as we do after every Patriots game, we'll chat with three-time Super Bowl champ James White. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, it is three-time Super Bowl champ James White. James, what's going on, man? Not much. How are you, man? Another another tough loss for the squad. They're fighting their way back at the end once again, but just not enough. I don't know. <laughs> I know, James. I was saying before you came on, it, it feels like the almost team right now, right? Where it's yeah, like yeah. after last week, after the Eagles game, you felt like, all right, huge opportunity coming up against the Dolphins. You felt like you found some stuff offensively, even to the end of the game. Cole Strange almost picks that up. A nice heads up play by Mike Gusecki, but at the end of it, it's the Patriots losing by a touchdown to this Miami team, and now they find themselves in an 0-2 hole with both those losses coming at home. Yes, yeah, tough way to start the year. Obviously, it's been pretty good to see that they've been putting themselves in a hole, but they've been fighting their way back to be in it towards the end of the game. This, you know, last week it was you know Boutte just coming up close, you know, converting the fourth down and another fourth down once again where. You know, Gasecki heads up play, flipping it back to Cole Strange. You know, I thought they should have never overturned the call. I mean, I guess it was close enough to overturn it at the end. But, hey, I want to see some more football. They should have let, let it stand, see how it was going to shake out. <laughs> Just on the basis that we don't see that very often. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They mean, deserve an opportunity. I had flashbacks, like, remember the Jacoby Myers play? But yeah. at that point, like, you're down in this one, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's yeah. fine to do it. The Jacoby yeah, one, it's a different situation. I'm like, whoa, I couldn't believe that actually happened. I mean, to think, to have the presence of mind to do that. And then Cole Strange, man, that was an impressive yeah. run, yeah, yeah, taking he, some bodies with him. Yeah, he high-pointed it and everything. Used his hands to catch it, <laughs> spin around, was driving his feet. And I thought, uh, I don't know who was talking after the game, but he was saying, you know, Van Ginkle, he started to grab at the ball a little bit. So I think that kind of stopped his momentum. You know, whenever somebody starts tugging at the ball, you're going in the opposite direction. It's kind of hard to start fighting for more yards. So tough play. But, hey, so they try to start a little bit faster, especially offensively. 
and even defensively today, they started a little bit slow against a, a really good offense, but they slowed them down as the game went on. All right. Well, speaking of the offense, before we get into some specifics, you look at this run game, which I felt like it was going to be a strength of the team coming into the season, especially when you have Ramondre, who's one of the better backs in the NFL. He certainly was that last year by the numbers, and I felt like Zeke could be a nice addition to this team as well. But the big issue to me feels like, James, right now, when you look at it in the first half, they're south of three yards per carry. In the game, they're south of four yards per carry. The thing that sticks out to me is there's no consistency up front, right? So the first two games, you're missing your starting guards. And now in this game, you're down Trent Brown, who unfortunately was dealing with an injury. Riley Reef, of course, started the season on IR. So you're playing Calvin Anderson, who's more of a swing tackle type guy. Vidarian Lowe, who doesn't really have a lot of NFL experience. It feels like, to me, it's more about that than it is sort of the running back. So how do they find a way to be more consistent in the running game? Because now we've seen it for two weeks, especially when it's against... Okay, one thing against Philly, right? But it's a different thing against Miami when we all watched the Chargers game last week and they're running on them (laughs) like crazy. Yeah, I think it's just the chemistry between the offensive line. We talked about it, you know, a couple weeks ago. Like, if you're going to have different lineups in the offensive line every single week, it's going to be very hard to run the football. It's going to be very hard to protect the quarterback. It's a very underrated thing when it comes to offensive lines. You can't just throw guys in there week in and week out and just think, oh, you're not going to skip a beat. Those guys really, you know, communicate every single play. They feed off one another. The longer they play together, the better the chemistry is, no matter whether you have, you know, a bunch of all-pro guys up there. If you at least have five guys up there who are going to play the entire season next to each other, they'll probably get better as the year goes on, most likely. But until they get that consistent offensive line play, consistent lineup out there, I feel like the, the running game is going to struggle. And even the pass blocking, they Mac was having to get rid of the ball even some most of his completions tonight, there's guys in his face barreling down on him. So until they get that figured out, I think they're going to continue to probably start a little bit slow on the offensive side of things, even though the second drive, they're moving the ball down the field, then obviously the fumble. But I think if, once they get the running game going, I feel like the offense will flow a lot better. Yeah, and it feels like to me with Mac in particular, the, drive, the second and last drive they had of the game where they went down and they scored, and even – a drive in the first half where they were building up some momentum, it kind of feels like Mac is right now at his most comfortable when it's sort of up-tempo. They're keeping the defense on the field. He's in empty a lot of those times. (laughs) Like, to me, I feel like it's almost like a two-minute drill type (laughs) offense is where Mac sort of thrives. So I wonder going forward if they try to lean on that a little bit more because I do feel like Mac makes good decisions in those type of situations. Yeah, it has seemed like that when they're seems like when they face adversity, that's when the offense starts flowing. When they're kind of running, hurry up. Yeah. The defense can't really get to their you know their trick and disguise call. They just kind of line up and run it. He gets to see the coverage. He gets the ball out of his hands, and also allows for the defensive line to get a little bit tired as well. So the offensive line, who's been struggling to hold up a little bit, they don't have to block for you know five plus seconds because they. Haven't been able to do that so far, but yeah, that that really has been their best offense. You know, getting to the ball, you know, catching guys at the seam, and him just getting the ball out quick, letting guys catch the ball and run with it. That really has been their best offense so far because that's that's really their running game so far. Because the running game is non-existent, so you get those little short completions, allow guys to you know make those yards at the catch. 
Yeah, it's been sort of a frustrating offense to watch. Like, as many times as it feels like they're putting together a good drive, <laughs> something happens, whether it's yeah. they give up a sack, yeah, sack or... penalty. <laughs> and one drive tonight, Mac Jones himself throws that key interception, right, yeah. where Devontae Parker is looking for him down the sideline. It, it felt like, to me, like that ball really should have never been thrown. I, I feel like maybe Parker could have fought for it a little bit more as well. It felt like, you know, he sort of, like, kind of yeah. gave up on that route what did you make of the interception for mac because it feels like this is a guy that can play so well for stretches yeah and then he just has that one mistake that he makes you scratch your head like mac what are you doing why are you throwing the ball there you you have points on the board already yeah if you can eliminate you know that one mistake a game that'll pay dividends for him i think Devontae really gave up on that route it was good coverage by xavier howard you know Devontae shouldn't have gave up also, Mac probably shouldn't have thrown that ball. That's their best corner on the field right there who's really good at taking the football away. You can see that every single year he ends up with, you know, four or five picks at least. So I know last year he did that a few times with Devontae. So it's maybe just the trust factor of, you know, Devontae's a jump ball receiver. So you could throw it up. Yeah. You know, you think he's at least going to come down with it or it's an incompletion. But that time he got, you know, worked out of bounds. So he kind of gave up on the play. He couldn't really do anything about that. But definitely want to try and eliminate that, especially getting to that close to the red zone where you kind of have those almost guaranteed points. Just have to make a little bit better of a decision right there. All right. And then Demario Douglas, it felt like he was going to be a big part of the game plan. He has the catch and run, and then he has the fumble. Bradley Chubb catches him from behind, and he picked up a chunk yardage there. The Patriots at that point were in field goal range. So it's basically, at the very least, it's a 10-point swing. I was saying earlier, it could have been a 14-point swing if you end up scoring a touchdown there, right? I mean, that's the hypothetical. At the very least, you had three points on the board right there, unless there was some crazy miss. But you were in chip shot range at that yeah. particular point. So to me, and I understand that he made a mistake, and I know this has sort of been like the history <laughs> of the Patriots, right? I mean, Jamie was saying before the show, we saw this with Stephen Ridley all the time, where Stephen Ridley would just get put on the bench. He had fumbling issues. But to me, I felt like, this was clearly going to be a game where it was going to be a short passing game, right? We saw it throughout the game, and it feels like maybe that's what the Patriots are going to do the majority of the season because they're covering up some of the issues they have on that offensive line. And as you said, maybe it's an extension of the running game. If that's the case, and I know this is sort of like what Bill does, he puts guys on the bench after the fumbles. I felt like they could have used Demario Douglas in this game just because when he touches the ball, I mean, you see it when he returns punts. He's kind of electric. I would have liked him back on the field. Yeah, that was a tough break for him. That was going to be a good catch and run, but that'll be something that'll be on the the low lights, you know, come tomorrow morning. That's something that Bill preaches about a bunch. I mean, not every team does that where their defense alignment chase and punch, but those good football teams that have guys that play with a lot of high energy, that's what's going to happen. You catch the ball, you know, five, ten yards down the field. If you're going to run sideways, those guys are coming. They're going to punch the ball out. Definitely was a, a tough break for him because that – that had a potential of, I mean, I don't know if he would have scored, but he could have got the ball close down to probably five, 10 yard line. And that was guaranteed points as well, right there. So it's got to better, do a better job when you're driving the ball and you, you cross the 50 yard line, you cross the 30 yard line. They all just have to make smart decisions because obviously those points that they're giving away right there, they end up costing them in the end. You're driving down, trying to tie the game up down seven. You know, last week they had to drive down potentially to go score to, to win a football game. So, to eliminate those mistakes, protect the football, which is always the thing that's been preached, you know, the Patriot, you know, organization for long before I even got there. So they just had to get back to the bases, get back to the fundamentals. And that, that allowed for them to have more success. From this game, what do you think will, 
as you guys like normally meet on what Mondays, what is going to irritate Bill the most? Like the full start on a kickoff. I mean, it didn't really affect the Patriots, but obviously that's something you don't ordinarily see. Like what from this game in particular will get Bill upset the most when they're watching film on Monday? Uh, I think defensively the the line of scrimmage there, the the Dolphins really controlled the line of scrimmage, which they're, I mean, obviously, there's some solid backs, but they're not a team that usually controls the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Most of really had a day over 100 yards rushing, had like six yards of carry. You know, even in you know like the third, fourth quarter, they're just moving guys out the football. He's getting four or five yards a pop and all that. So I think that'll be a big thing. And protecting the quarterback. Like I said, Mac was under duress pretty much the entire game. Like, like I said, most of his completions, guys were barreling down on him. He has really impressive throws under pressure, him standing in there or – you know, escaping the pocket, trying to make plays. They're going to have to clean that up. That's not going to work week in and week out. Yeah, it, it was certainly sometimes you feel for Mac when he's out there. Like last yeah. year, the issue is we had issues with the play calling. <laughs> this year, it feels like the offensive line is sort of going to be the theme of the season that is going to affect Mac. I, I mean, I think it's a good thing that you have Bill O'Brien that can sort of try yeah. to figure Mass things out that. in terms of what you want to do, get rid of the ball quickly and all that. Um, defensively, it felt like early on in this game, I liked the game plan, right? It was like, all right, Bill's going to play three safeties and sort of make Tua in that offense Bill beat you with a million paper cuts, right? And they go down the field and the Patriots get to stop and they have to settle for a field goal right in the red zone. And really overall, Jalen Waddell had a couple of big plays in this game. And obviously after the Patriots had to punt the ball back, where Gonzalez gets the pick, which I thought was an incredible play, and then yeah. Mack gets sacked. You got to punt it back. Very next play, Mostert Touchdown. runs for 43 yards. <laughs> Other than that, it wasn't like Waddle had a couple of big ones, as we mentioned. It didn't feel like the Dolphins. It was nothing like the Dolphins' offense we saw yeah. last week against the Chargers, but I mean, I don't think Brandon Staley's a good coach. I felt like Bill and Steve <laughs> Belichick and Gerard Mayo. I may be disagreeing on that, but did, I didn't did, think did the, I thought his, those. Did you see his interview after the game? <laughs> what did he say? Uh, I think uh, a reporter asked him about last year's playoff loss to the Jaguars, and it's still like carrying over to the season. He was he was hot. He's like, "That's last year. How you gonna? How's that gonna carry over?" Like all that. He, he was hot. He was, he was pissed off. But yeah, that, yeah. that guy's an idiot. Remember when he just kept going for every fourth, fourth down, down a couple yeah, years ago? Yeah, it's, yeah, he's in a hot seat for sure. So he better he better get it going with that roster. They're, they're supposed to be a lot a lot better than what they are, but. Yeah, this this team they gotta they gotta figure things out, especially defensively. I thought they did a good job, you know, against this offense, which is very very explosive. You know, when when Bill plays teams like this, he's gonna make you try and work the ball down the field. You know, eliminate the big play. I know Tyreek Hill was talking all the mess during the media, talking about the double coverage. He was gonna still go out there and kill. He's like, no, you're not. You know, we're gonna <laughs> eliminate you from the football game. That's that's gonna be the key thing. Make everybody else beat you. If they were just able to stop the running game, then obviously it would have made this game probably – I mean, it was a close game at the end. It would have made a lot more tight, which I was surprised about. I was really surprised they were able to control the line of scrimmage, especially you know, no Armstead at left tackle. I thought I always thought their offensive line wasn't that great, but they showed up tonight. Yeah, that, that was – and even like Collinsworth was saying on the broadcast, that was one of the big surprises is they were yeah. – 
really running the ball whenever they wanted to. I mean, it felt like it was easy for them to run the football. How big do you think it was Marcus Jones goes down in this game after already having Jonathan Jones out? And I was mentioning that if you go back to the final drive of the first half, it felt like the Patriots adjusted well to it after halftime. But that final drive of the first half, after the Pats had gone down and what kicked the field goal, it was like, man, Sean Wade's out there. Let's go after Sean Wade. Miles Bryant's out there. Let's go after Miles Bryant. It just felt like... Those guys had bullseyes on them, and Tua and Mike McDaniel were going right after those guys, and maybe it took until halftime to sort of figure out, okay, this is how we have to protect those guys, but you're already dealing with Jack Jones, who's on IR, and then Jonathan Jones, your fastest player, right? He's not available, and we know that Bill has been really good using him, and look, Tyreek Hill, give them credit, he only had the 40 yards in the game, so they did a good job on him, but you also want that guy out there as one of your leaders and a really good corner, so basically, out of your three best corners, where it's Jonathan Jones, in no particular order, Jonathan Jones, Jack Jones, and the rookie Christian Gonzalez, you don't have two of those guys, and your fourth corner, Marcus Jones, is now out of the equation, like, the fact that those guys didn't get beat up more than they did, it, it almost surprises me. Yeah, it's it's tough when you go down to your fourth, fifth, you know, corners of the depth chart and you're going against going up against some talented receivers like the Dolphins, you expect for them to have their way, but they definitely attacked those guys on that drive going to the half and they were able to score, you know, right before halftime. I at that point I was like, Oh, it's gonna might end up in a little bit of a route. But like I said they did a great job of responding, protecting those guys. They have a lot of versatility in that secondary, so they're always gonna be able to adjust. Like you said, they put three safeties on the field. Those guys can match up against, you know, some slot receivers, maybe like not like Waddle and you know, guys like Tyreek Hill, but they're going to try and disguise, throw some different looks at them to create pressure, you know, on defenses to make sure guys aren't necessarily left on the island. But those guys are definitely going to have to get back on the field, you know, sooner than later because it's going to be it's gonna be tough for some of those guys. They're going to be put in some, some tough situations going forward. Some next two weeks, some tough matchups, obviously – you know, no Aaron Rodgers next week, but they have some talented receivers, Gary Wilson over there that presents some problems. And then Dallas the following week, they're looking like the best team in the league right now. So don't get any easier going for. <laughs> You're not kidding about that. All right. So that schooler play on the block uh, on the field goal, it, it was amazing. <laughs> I, I've i never seen that before. Were you, did you practice that at all when you were there? Like, did you see that play before? Because it was almost like, He's going in motion like he's on yeah, offense, yeah. and then he just beelines right to <laughs> the kicker. I mean, that was an unbelievable That's, play. That was a that was a heck of a play. But they, like, obviously, you know, Bill Belichick takes special teams serious, probably more serious than you know most other coaches. They're gonna find any tidbit that they see on field, little tip, like, oh, they do this. That's when the ball's coming. They he looks for this, then three seconds later, that's when the snap's coming. So. He probably looked for somebody to get a alert of when, like two seconds before they're about to snap it, comes down the line. That's just like a play. I've never seen that like actually work and get <laughs> get blocked yeah. in the game. That's so that that's just great preparation by Schooler. He's you know he's a guy. He came in last year, obviously going to be strictly special team guy. He's fast. He's smart to make a play like that. That was that was impressive. And the comeback on the field goal later in the game, obviously he didn't block it, but you can tell they were thinking about it. So. A lot of teams are going to be thinking about that going forward, but I'm sure some teams will try and scheme something up. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, teams around the league are going to start yeah. to do that now. Yeah. Like, and we'll see. I, I guarantee you it happens next Saturday. 100%. Some, maybe it's even Alabama. Yeah. They're playing Ole Miss. Like, that's a big game. Maybe Nick Saban tries to bust it out. Like Remember, what was it when you guys – I forget what game it was. I think it was the Ravens in 2014 where Bill took that thing from Saban where it was like, 
the guys they thought they were eligible, oh, but oh, they yeah, were yeah, ineligible. Yeah we, did, yeah, we did that like three times. <laughs> they were they were pissed off. They were pissed off. We were like no huddling doing it. They they were hot. Yeah, they were yeah it was off like wasn't it like the running back was ineligible? Yeah, the running back was ineligible. We let the tight end go up the seam. Like they we did it like three times. They just couldn't figure it out every single time. So they Harbaugh was pissed about that one. I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember after the game too. Tom said, "Well, maybe you should study the rule book." <laughs> yeah, I mean, you should. I mean, if, if you get beat by it three times, I mean, come on, like you got to figure it out yeah. at some point. <laughs> and then Harbaugh, that sore loser, like tipped off the Colts and said, "Hey, you better check. You should have the NFL check the footballs." It's like, dude, you just, the Colts just lost by forty. I would have beat you with a fucking beach ball. I don't know why that still annoys me, yeah. but I just remember yeah. that whole thing. Like uh, time, even Brady, man. like. Leading up to it, Brady was like, he thought it was a joke after the game. He's like, what are you talking about? You but serious? that just tells you how ridiculous the the NFL is and how ridiculous that whole thing is. I don't know how I got onto that subject, but so James, <laughs> I was going to ask you like, hey, what's it like this week in the locker room? But you've never been 0-2. I mean, the the last time the Patriots were 0-2 was 2001. I mean, maybe that's some hope, but yeah. the Bengals last year started 0-2. They made the playoffs, but... I mean, I get. I feel like the team. There's not going to be an issue this week, right? I mean, it's too early in the season where you look at it and no. you say, "Okay, we have an opportunity, another division game against the Jets. We can get back to one and two, and then we have this huge game coming against Dallas." And it looks a little rosier for you that Zach Wilson. If you watch any of that game today, he still looks like Zach Wilson. <laughs> had the three interceptions. I mean, some of those interceptions were just bad. And look, at the end, I guess he's kind of pressing, but. I, I really don't think he saw Malik Cooker on the last one. He definitely didn't see Diggs. I mean, these are some bad yeah. interceptions that he threw. And <laughs> did you see when it was like third and 10 early in the game and they just ran it? It was like a nah, draw. Nah. I'm like, <laughs> they, this, they're trying to protect him. Yeah, this guy, Robert Sala said, Robert Sala said, Zach's our guy. It's like, oh, yeah, you're really treating him like he's your guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they should be feasting on Zach Wilson next week for sure. I mean, I mean, the last two times we played him, he's really struggled. Hasn't really done much. A lot of interceptions, a lot of incompletions. So I'm sure they're going to come in. I mean, Dolphins ran the ball really well, so they're going to. They have two good running backs, so yeah, I'm sure they're going to lean into that running game. You know, coming into this week, but yeah, it's going to be a great challenge. You know, going forward, and the, the Jets is going to be a tough matchup still, regardless. Their their defense, you know, presents a lot of problems in itself. So. And on the offensive line, they have they're probably like eight deep on their offensive on their defensive front. They have like eight guys who can really rush the passer. So it's gonna be hopefully Trent can get back out there. Hopefully, you know, the true starting five could be out there to protect for for Mac because it's gonna potentially be another long day. But thank goodness their offense can't really score that many points. But it's it's definitely gonna be a tough stretch. But I think the team will stay together, you know, coming into this week. I've never been 0 2, but we've my my rookie year, I'm pretty sure we started like one and two or like one and three when we got beat up by the Chiefs. You know, at, at their home turf, we got beat at like 42 14. I'm saying it's like the end of Tom, end of the dynasty, all that stuff. So they'll, they'll be, be able to have everybody motivated, ready to go, especially against the Jets because he, he really does not like the Jets. So guys will be fired up <laughs> for this upcoming week. They, they really have no choice. You go because you, you go 0 and 3, and you go into Dallas, which is they're playing well. and I mean, obviously, you don't want to end up going on four. It's hard. it's hard to turn things around. You lose, you know, two division games. Everybody's playing. I mean, everybody got better this offseason in the division. Obviously, the Jets lose Aaron Rodgers, which is a huge thing. But it's going to be tough sledding. You go 0-3, lose to the Jets, 0-2 in the division. 
then things started to get a little, you know, <laughs> up in the air in the, in the locker room there. <laughs> so Bill definitely knows that that defensive coordinator for the Jets, what's his name, Albrecht, whatever? Albrecht, yeah. yeah uh, that he's, he's he said little, that thing about that he basically knocks. mocked the do your job thing. Bill yeah, definitely he, knows, right? 100%. He, yeah, he's going <laughs> to. He'll be fired up this week. I, I'll, I'll just say that. He's always fired up for the Jet week. I, I, said, I think this is a week for obviously going to be tough to go up against that defense, but offense to kind of get clicking, defense continue to build confidence. Hope this, They should create a few turnovers, I'm sure, make it really tough on the Jets. Just got to stop the running game. That's going to be the most important thing. Yeah. I just – I worry about the other side. Like, I'm with you. Like, they got to figure out a way to stop Brees Hall. And Delvin yeah. Cook may just fumble it. He's had that issue for the past two years, and he had a yeah. huge fumble in the game today. I, I wonder, though, on the other side, like, we were just talking about the Dolphins' defense where they could get after Mac Jones, and they were missing. They didn't have Jalen Phillips in this game. Yeah. They had guys that were injured. Yeah. That dude Van Ginkle was Ginkle, like yeah, all Wisconsin, over the place. Wisconsin, Wisconsin, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, he was killing, he ru- ruined the game <laughs> at points. And then on the other side of things, what we started, or one of the things we started with, was the run game, where they can't really run the ball consistently. And the Jets, I mean, this is a team that's tough to run on. It's obviously a team that's difficult to pass on. I'm just, I wonder what Bill O'Brien is going to go to. I wonder if it is what we were talking about earlier. If he goes empty and tries to get the ball out quickly with Mac. I mean, maybe that's your best thing to try to take away some of that pass rush. Yeah, that might be the the best bet, honestly, just to try and get the ball into space. To Like I said, I think this receiving core and these backs, they're, they're all good with the ball in their hands. So just get the ball to the, even the tight ends as well. Get the ball to those guys, you know, line up and empty, clear the picture for Mac. Obviously that pass rush, is, they're, they're really good. There's, like I said, they're like eight deep. So use the cadence. All that good stuff to try and mix it up on them. Even I'm sure they're going to mix in tempo just to wear some of those defensive linemen out too. Because especially when Quentin Williams is not in the game, use some use some tempo to that guy. He, he's really good. I like him. He's really grown as a player. He's gotten better and better every year. So it's going to be a tough challenge regardless of who the starting quarterback is for the Jets. But like I said, I don't think they're going to score too many points. So obviously, I think we should score. Be able to score on this defense. They, they are good, but we should be able to score on them. All right. Hey, I wanted to get your take on. So after the Rodgers injury, a lot of players were talking about I saw David Bakhtiari was maybe the most outspoken about that all fields should be grass and no turf. How do you feel about that? Is that something that players talk about a lot? Um, Yeah, some players do. For me, I never really had a preference. Honestly, I've been playing on turf since high school, college. We practice on turf every single day. We never practice on on uh, grass whatsoever. I think they they do it now, Wisconsin, but I never necessarily had a preference. But I know for some guys, like their knees and joints, they feel a little bit feel a little bit more different and banged up after practicing on turf. But for me, I never necessarily had an issue with it. But I, I said, if I'm all for the people that if that's what people want, I hey, whatever the majority wants, I do not care. I I would go out there and play on whatever. I mean, obviously, I I broke my hip on turf, so maybe if it was on grass, maybe maybe I don't break my hip. I don't know. So. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> I don't no clue. <laughs> yeah, I guess what a lot of guys were saying is like, well, you can cut faster, but that can lead to more injuries where more the damage. like the natural surface, like basically. Softer. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that was the argument to it. But uh, by the way, did you see what happened at the end of the San Francisco game, the Rams game? So I heard, I heard they were well, they were down what ten points, and then they decided yeah. to kick a field goal with. The- <laughs> They kicked, the the spread. Yeah, they kicked a field goal with four seconds left. Time expired. And the spread was eight. 
<laughs> some people some people were on the Niners, right? Oh, on the man. on the eight. They kick a field. I'm like, there's no way that Sean <laughs> no, McVay know. doesn't know this. Why else would you kick a field goal? It's yeah, the it's last just, play of the game. Let's cover the spread. <laughs> Unreal. McVay, man. man, that was unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Hey, James, before I let you go, because I know you're doing a ton of stuff this year for the Big Ten Network, some huge games coming up next week in college football, like Ohio State, Notre Dame. So after yesterday, Saturday, I'm really confused. Who do you think right now? Because like, Georgia, I mean, they got a fight from South Carolina. Georgia's weird. I was watching the game with my brother. He's like, yeah, they'll do this thing where they don't play well for a while, and then they'll <laughs> score like four straight touchdowns. And they actually did. I'm like, wow, that was a pretty good prediction by you. But to you right now, who's the best team in the country? I mean, Alabama, they were on their third quarterback yesterday. And I know they had already lost, but that was kind of crazy. And then Texas had some trouble with, who was it, Wyoming. And yeah. Colorado had some trouble with Colorado yeah, State. I mean, I still like USC with Caleb Williams, but is yeah, the rest no of the defense. team good enough? Yeah, good enough? <laughs> it's one of those years we just have no idea. This, this hasn't happened in, in quite some time. I literally have no idea who this, who's the best team in college football. If I had to pick one, I don't know. I, I just had to play, say, Michigan, but they haven't really played anybody yet. So I can't really say that just yet. I mean, I think te- you had to throw Texas in there, Georgia. but. USC, I, I don't know. Nobody, there's been a lot of up and down play throughout college football. And I think, you know, throughout the last several years, maybe with the transfer portal and all that stuff, there's been a lot more continuity. I feel like it's almost an even playing field almost every single game. This is an opportunity for any team to win on any given Saturday, which is, which is pretty cool to see. Cause usually, you know, these first four weeks in the season, you can roll into a game, uh, you know, Alabama's going to win by 60 today, or Texas is going to win by 60 today. They're playing Georgia Southern. Wisconsin's going to win by 60. No, they're not they're only going to win by t- by 20 points against you know Georgia Southern. So it's, it's the parity in college football, I think, has become a lot greater. It's, be- it's become fun to watch, though, because every single week there's a close matchup. That that Colorado-Colorado State game, that was a fun one to watch. I stayed, and w- stayed up and watched the entire thing. It was cool to see you know Shador Sanders kind of will his team back after all that. You know, all the penalties from Colorado State, they had like 17 penalties. Kent obviously going to lose a football game doing that. So it's tough, but there's definitely not one team just sticking out to me. It's it's one of those years where it could be anybody. Maybe somebody will emerge, you know, as the, the weeks go on. But right now, couldn't pick one. Yeah, my orange 3-0 beat Purdue yeah. yesterday. Yeah, yeah, the Syracuse Day. Yeah, Schrader shredding yeah. them up. 195 yards <laughs> rushing. That was crazy. <laughs> I'll tell you what, that guy's got some balls, man. He takes some, he takes some vicious hits. I'm like, man, you got to relax. Like they, they need you in these games. It kind of, it kind of reminds me of not like to say he's nowhere near the player, but Josh Allen, he did it again yeah. today against the yeah. Raiders. I'm like, dude, he's like what are you doing? Over people, I'm like, dude, like you said, you're gonna protect yourself and all that. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I do not get it. <laughs> all right, that is three times Super Bowl champ James White. James, thanks so much for the time. We'll talk next week after the Patriots and the Jets, which it's actually going to be a one o'clock game. The Patriots have had the four twenty-five and then the late game. Yeah. I did see, you know, the Chiefs. They had their last one o'clock game of the season today. The rest of their games are all in the four twenty window or prime time. It's pretty crazy. That's like you guys. You guys used yeah. to be that way. Yeah, I mean that's like like the Cowboys too. They always play like four. 420 or obviously prime time thanks to jerry but yeah i'd much rather have the one o'clock games give me those games all day <laughs> I mean, it's fun playing on monday night sunday night all that but 
give me one o'clock. I'm I'm right. Yeah, you got to wait around, right? Yeah, let let me get up and get to it and go home, watch the rest of the night of football and all that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that is three-time Super Bowl champ, James White. James, thanks so much for the time, man. No problem. Thank you. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. And I'm looking at a couple of Patriots futures. I like them to go over eight and a half wins. You can get that at good value at plus 220. And remember, this Patriots team won eight games last year, and they had two losses that come to mind. The Raiders game, where Jacoby Myers threw it away, literally to Chandler Jones, and that Bengals game, the Patriots were going in to win that one, and unfortunately, Ramondre Stevenson fumbled. So I love that. Plus 220 for the Patriots to win over eight and a half games. I also like the Patriots to make the playoffs at plus 250. It's very good value there. Now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use, and you can be on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after a seat. Restriction supply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. NFL Sunday ticket offer ends on September 18th, 2023. No refunds. Terms and embargoes apply. $100 off NFL Sunday ticket, not YouTube TV. YouTube TV base plan required to watch YouTube TV. Redemption requires a Google account and current form of payment. Commercial use excluded. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff as always with James White. I really am intrigued by the college football season. I know it's not super big in New England, but I love watching college football. It's a lot of fun on Saturdays to just watch a bunch of different games and now that it's legal to bet in Massachusetts, put a couple of nice wagers on FanDuel, and I enjoy doing that on Saturdays as well. All right, we do have time for a couple of phone calls, so let's do that. The number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Brian, it's David from Kentucky calling you after the the Pats fall again in a game that was completely winnable. Uh, they've lost to two 2-0 two teams uh, that should be both 1-1, one and, one, and the Pats should be 2-0. and oh. Um, man, it's hard to, to see straight after a, a loss like that. Uh, you know, I, I just finished reading Wickersham's, uh, Better to Be Feared, you know, book that, that, you know, gives a, uh, a chronology of, of the dynasty. And man, you know, in it, one of the things Belichick would say to his assistants early in his time at New England was, hey, just don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. That he hated fumbles and he hated, uh, the, 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 the penalties and the, and the things that would lose you games. Uh, and take you out of an opportunity to win games. And man, <laughs> since, since Brady left the building, uh, you go back to 2020 and, and look at, I think there were two or three block punts that were just awful, uh, in 2020. And, uh, the, the horrific play calling on offense last year and how many penalties and how many times have we heard announcers say in the last three years, well, that's a very unpatriot-like thing to do. I, I I'm just wondering, like, when do we get back to, not messing it up. When do we get back to executing? Because here's the thing. Mac was, was good at points and bad at points tonight. I thought the defense was good at points and bad at points tonight. I thought the weapons were good at points and bad at points tonight. I mean, the O-line was, was pretty bad all night. But, but really, I mean, in the last two games, we've had good moments and bad moments. Our special teams, I thought, has been pretty good the last two games. 
But the question is, when do we get back after these three years of watching Cam Newton throw freaking shortstop skid balls in the dirt and watching the this, <laughs> the horrific uh, offense that was last year and and just the 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 frustrating almost there of this year? When do we get back to a team that just doesn't mess it up? Just doesn't mess it up. Just doesn't lose games. Because you can complain about the refs. And it's frustrating. I mean, you want them to get get the play there to, to have a chance to win. But do any of us really think that if, if Cole Strange gets that first down, we go win that game? Because I don't. Because I think we messed it up. And I want a Patriots team that, that just gets back to not messing it up. Get out of your own way and win games. As always, love the show. I appreciate you at least trying to keep us all sane, and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks. All right, great call, and there's a lot of meat on the bone there. So let me just start with this to your point about it's a very unpatriot-like mistake. I don't think that's the case anymore, right? Like you're pointing out that announcers say that, and I agree with you. They say it all the time, but we haven't seen that be the case in sort of the post-Tom Brady era, where this team does continually make these type of mistakes that cost them big time in these games. Like, and I'm not blaming a rookie for this, and I'm not saying, like, I don't believe in Demario Douglas anymore, but was anybody surprised when you have a fumble there? Was anybody surprised when Mac Jones threw the interception where he's looking for Devontae Parker? This Patriots team continually makes these mistakes where the problem for them is they don't have the ammunition. They don't have the firepower to come back in these games, and they just continually have these type of mistakes, even going back where it's either an untimely sack where the Patriots, when they get behind the chains, they don't have the ability to be able to fight back or they have the ability to fight back, but they don't have the ability to convert these big third and longs, these big second and longs. They just don't have it. They're not talented enough to do that. So this whole idea that the Patriots used to have is you have to learn not to lose, right? Well, the Patriots haven't learned that yet. They've made too many critical mistakes at big points in the game where they've cost themselves games over the past couple of years. And look, I don't know if I agree with you that they should be 2-0. Two, two I think they should have won the Philadelphia game where they outplayed Philly. But the problem is you had those turnovers early. I look at this game. You had critical turnovers in this game that cost you an opportunity, right? You had plenty of opportunities to win this game. And unfortunately, you couldn't take advantage of them. When your rookie makes a huge interception like he did... You can't go three and out. Your quarterback, and it's not Max's fault, he got sacked there. You can't have your quarterback get sacked the possession after you get the interception. It's just these are the type of things where those things that used to happen for the Patriots when they would get an opportunity handed to them or they would earn an opportunity. Like, for example, the Christian Gonzalez play. In the past, the Patriots would go down the field and score. And the one thing that kind of surprises me more so than anything else about this team right now, I shouldn't say surprises me. But that kind of has me still questioning what the thought process was. The offensive line is a mess. There's no way around it. There, the offensive line is not good. And Bill O'Brien can do his best to try to sort of hide some of the issues, deficiencies they have. We've gone through it, right, throughout the offseason into the regular season. But the two guards were bad in the starting game for the Patriots. Vidarian Lowe was a turnstile of points during this game on Sunday night. And... You would think that if you had a quarterback that, and one of the biggest plays the Patriots actually had in this game was Mac Jones' scramble. The two biggest plays they had was Mac Jones' scramble and Ramondre running for like 12 yards. They did not have a lot of explosive plays in this game. But when you look at it, is Mac is not a very mobile guy, right? We all acknowledge that. So you would think that you would want to have one of the strengths of your team 
be the offensive line, right? So the thing that sort of, I don't want to say irritates me, but it sort of confuses me about the Patriots is you would think that if you had a quarterback that was somewhat limited from a talent perspective, from a ceiling perspective, you would either want to have one of two things, a ton of weapons. Like, for example, this is what the San Francisco 49ers have had for so many years, right? Like you look at Brock Purdy right now and Purdy, he's playing well for that 49ers team. But before him, it was Jimmy Garoppolo, right? And Jimmy Garoppolo, he certainly has his talents, but he wouldn't be considered to be one of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL. So he has great weapons, right? When it's Debo Samuel, when it's George Kittle, they traded for McCaffrey last year. They drafted Brandon Ayuk. You look at a team, for example, like the Dolphins that we mentioned. Okay, they don't have a great offensive line, but you know what they have? A ton of weapons. When we're talking about Tyreek Hill, when we're talking about Jalen Waddle, they have outstanding weapons. The Patriots don't have weapons, great weapons across the board, or they don't have a great offensive line. You would figure that you would have one of those things when you have a limited quarterback, and unfortunately, the Patriots don't. And to sort of bring this full circle, getting back to your original question about when do they get back to not screwing things up or however you phrased it and not not messing up, I don't know. I, re- I don't have a good answer on that because I really felt like, and you heard me on the podcast last week, I felt really positive about this team. I felt like, all right, yeah, that's fine. They made some mistakes, but they'll clean this up. It's going to be fine. And they did the same thing in this game against the Miami Dolphins, and they lose by a touchdown. Like, they had opportunities. The difference is they made more careless, reckless mistakes than the Dolphins did. Yeah, the Tua interception, that was a mistake for them, but the Patriots made more of those mistakes, and we're talking about giving up sacks, and we're talking about the Mack interception, and we're talking about the Douglas fumble. Like, those things all add up, and the Patriots are usually in the column that has more fuck-ups than their opponents right now, especially when it's a good opponent like the Dolphins, like the Philadelphia Eagles. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian, uh, this is John calling in from Arlington, Massachusetts. Um, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Normally, uh, I some of the guys on EI and the like that do it, but um, you touched the nerve with the uh, Hein Bloom episode because my hatred for him just burns so freaking hot I can't describe it. Um, I'm, I'd, I'd like to take on Hunter Renfro and that it wasn't, you know, the biggest mistake in the world, but at the same time, I think you're underselling it. If you take it in isolation, it's not the biggest mistake in the world. What you got to remember, though, is we let Renfro go and then botched Kyle Schwarber. You know, I completely understand, hey, you don't need two power-hitting corner outfielders. I get it, but you might want to get one of them before you let the other one go. It just strikes me as a kind of classic bloom, not reading the room, being a little too arrogant and putting the cart before the horse. Um, Again, I get it. You don't need them both. I'm willing to concede that argument. Money doesn't grow on trees, all that jazz. But letting both of them go is a is a colossal screw up. I mean, look, it's not Mookie bad, it's not Xander bad, but it's a pretty freaking colossal screw up, and it's just one of many in the Heimbloom era, if you will. It's in large part why I am not sad at all to see him go. All right, thanks. Bye. It's a fair point. My whole point with the Renfro thing, just to sort of paraphrase my original thought process on that, is I was saying in a vacuum, I'm okay with letting Hunter Renfro go if you bring in an everyday right fielder. And to your point, that could have been Kyle Schwarber if you wanted to keep Schwarber around. I don't think Schwarber, of course, could have played the outfield every day. But if you want to say, hey, he becomes the DH, fine. But then you have J.D. Martinez. But the whole thing is, whether it's Schwarber or whether it's somebody else, and I get your point about like replacing the power, you needed a real starting outfielder. And 
if you thought, okay, we can hide Schwarber, he can play out in the outfield, that's fine. And if that's your prerogative, that's the guy. And I loved him in terms of his discipline at the plate and all that. Like, I, I totally, and I love cheering for the guy. Like, he was very entertaining. But my whole point is just you need to get somebody that can play right field every day. And that's where I think Bloom screwed up the Renfro thing is, all right, if you want to go buy prospects, that's fine. And I've always said that's actually a big market deal because they took on more money for Jackie Bradley Jr., The reason they took on more money for Jackie Bradley Jr. is they wanted the prospects. Say what you want about the prospects. That's what they wanted. That actually is a big market move. But what didn't happen is a corresponding move to go out there and get somebody that could play right field every day and could give you some of the offense that Renfro gave the team in 2021. That's where I had the biggest issue. So if your pick for that was Schwarber, that's fine. It's clear that they were missing a lot of power in the lineup after that. Now, part of that, too, is J.D. Martinez and Bogarts. Their power numbers went way down as well. But you needed a corner outfielder that could hit for power. And the Red Sox didn't address it. They just let one guy go. I mean, or they traded one guy away. It just that's where I kind of disagreed with Bloom's philosophy on that. And I disagreed with it at the time. I defended like when they originally made the deal, I was like, okay, this is fine. They're going to get a right fielder. And then they never got a right fielder. I'm like, well, I can't defend the move anymore because he didn't get a right fielder. My whole thing about the move at the time was, oh, this is great. Okay, fine. You want to buy prospects? Now go get a real right fielder because I wasn't a big Renfro guy. I thought that his defense was completely overrated. I know he had the great arm and all that. He was absolutely atrocious in the postseason. Throw him a high fastball. He's not going to hit it. Like I was never the biggest Renfro guy. But I can also acknowledge the guy brought a lot of value to the team by just providing the home runs that he was able to hit. So you needed to replace that in the offense. And unfortunately, the Red Sox didn't do that. Speaking of the Sox, I do want to get to some more Red Sox because now we may have an idea of who the Red Sox could target as their next president of baseball operations or GM, whatever they want to title, the next person that takes over for Bloom. Welcome back into Off the Pike. All right, I do want to get to the Red Sox a bit here because we've now had a couple of days to let this Heim Bloom firing sort of marinade. You heard my Thursday pod. I gave you my take on Heim Bloom and all the mishaps that he's had throughout his tenure with the organization. But now some names trickling out in terms of who the Red Sox could actually go after. So I do want to get to that. But before that, I think we have to be fair about this situation. So Alex Spear from The Globe, he wrote that according to sources... The Sox were deep in talks with the Marlins on the day of the deadline about a deal that would have sent Justin Turner to Miami for Edward Cabrera. Okay, so first of all, remember what transpired right after the trading deadline. The next day, or I should say, actually, what was it, maybe 36 hours later, something along those lines. It was definitely before the thir- before Thursday, because I remember talking about it on the Thursday pod with Ann Kundal from SoxProspects.com, but... Remember, the Marlins wanted that story out there, right? Because they felt like, oh, we had a deal done with the Red Sox and it didn't go down. But this is what I'll say about that is if you look at what is happening now, if you go on Red Sox Twitter, right? If you're on Twitter and you're looking stuff up about the Red Sox, this story is going to be out there. And it feels like from my perspective, people are just killing Bloom for not making that trade. And look, I've made it abundantly clear. I thought the Red Sox should have moved on from Heim Bloom. I told you how I felt about Bloom. He does not know how to handle a major league club. I've made this, I've talked about this basically since we started the pod here, right? That Bloom is just really, really bad at putting together a major league team. So I thought that he deserved to be fired. I thought it was time to move on from Bloom. But this is what I'll say in defense of Heim in some sense. This is what happens now. After a guy gets fired, 
we're going to see all these stories come out that basically paint that guy in a bad light because now nobody within the organization has allegiance time anymore and they want to make it look like Bloom did a horrible job. And at the major league level, he did do a horrible job. But I just feel like this story to me, it's great reporting by Alex Spear and all that. But I do feel like sort of we're missing out some of the components to this story in terms of the way it's being talked about in social media, the way you hear it being talked about on the radio and all over the place, right? Like, I feel like this is sort of unfair right now. So at that time, remember, and now it feels like, all right, well, right now the Sox are battling for not to finish in last place, right? Like, that's their goal. Don't finish in last place. But at the time of the trading deadline, go back to August 1st. And I get it. Like, it looks bad now because Justin Turner is a 38-year-old hitter that really can't play in the field because he ends up getting injured. And we saw that this season with the heel situation or a 25 year old pitcher that has electric stuff in Edward Cabrera, right? So right now, based on where the Red Sox are, where it's like, hopefully they don't finish in last, or maybe you want them to finish in last at this particular point in time. But wait, hold on. You're going to finish in last. You had a 38 year old. You didn't trade him for a 25 year old pitcher when this organization desperately needs pitching, right? But let me remind you of this. The Sox at the trading deadline, we're two and a half games back at that time from May 1st, when Justin Turner got hot through August 1st, which is the deadline. So that's three months. Turner was slugging 527. Only Casas was better on the Sox. He had 15 home runs during that stretch. That was tied with Raffi for the most on the team during that stretch. He had 62 RBIs, 13 more than any other Red Sox player. I remember doing a pod about how great he's been with runners in scoring position. And his OPS was 880. That was second on the Red Sox at that time. So he was your second, or you could argue your best hitter for three months and one of the best run producers in all of Major League Baseball. In fact, the 62 RBIs during that stretch from May 1st through August 1st, that, those 62 RBIs ranked six. Okay, so you're in a race to try to get a wild card spot. You're two and a half back. We felt like, hey, and remember what happened is after you play the Blue Jays that next weekend, you got swept by the Blue Jays. But going into that series or I should say right at the deadline, August 1st, you're two and a half back, okay? So it's a lot different, right? How do you sell that to the clubhouse? Hey, um, yeah, we're trading away Justin Turner for a 25-year-old because we think he can be good in the future. And hey, right now, guys, we're giving up our best hitter and definitely our best hitter with runners in scoring position. So it's just like, when we look at this now, it feels like, yes, they should have definitely made that trade, right? But they thought they were being competitive. They were two and a half back in terms of the wild card race with an opportunity to try to make it into the postseason because Cabrera, nasty stuff, right? But for his career, and I'm not defending this, I'm just pointing out sort of the whole story here. For his career, he's still very young at 25, but he has a 132 whip and a 412 career ERA. So not exactly like he came up to the big leagues and he was great. And if you look at Cabrera's numbers this season, his 16.1% walk rate, is 155th of the 155 pitchers that have thrown at least 80 innings this season, okay? So yes, he has a filthy changeup, he has an unreal fastball, he has electric stuff, but there's a chance, because of his issues with command, that he never puts it all together. He's a wild card, right? That's why Miami was willing to sort of give him up, is, hey, he may be great, but there's also a chance he may suck. A guy with this amount of stuff, it's great, but if he cannot command his stuff, he may either be just not a good starting pitcher or he may be great. Like, you don't know. It's very difficult to determine that with a guy that has those issues sort of with command, right? So I'm just trying to be fair here. I'm all for criticizing Haim. 
But the amount of shit he's taking for this on Red Sox Twitter is just unfair. Remember, he was right to trade Christian Vasquez, and I'm not defending last year's deadline in totality. But the one thing he was right about was to trade Christian Vasquez. He gets Abreu, who that guy's plate discipline is incredible. You get Valdez in the trade as well. Like, that was a good move. And I think we can all agree, even people that criticize Bloom for that move at the time, because there were a lot of Red Sox fans that did, he was correct on that. That was the right move to get those guys into the organization and move on from Christian Vasquez. Christian Vasquez has always been an overrated player. He took shit for that, okay? What do you think would have happened at this year's deadline when they're two and a half games back, you trade away Justin Turner, who's a leader in the clubhouse and who has been your most productive hitter with runners in scoring position and one of your best hitters in totality this season. I just feel like you have to put yourself back in that situation where, yes, right now, it seems like I would much rather have Edward Cabrera going forward with this organization because the upside is through the roof with this guy. The fastball's north of 96 miles an hour. The changeup's unbelievable. Much rather have that. But I feel like when this is getting discussed, we're leaving out an important situation here is the Red Sox were in the race. They were two and a half games back. That's why if Heimblum was going to trade Justin Turner at the trading deadline, he was going to have to be, not him, but the perception was going to have to be like, you can't pass up on that deal. Like, what the Red Sox were asking for was more. We need Cabrera and more. Because I'm sure that Bloom wanted Cabrera, but he knew that if he just traded for Cabrera and just got rid of Turner, it would have been deemed as, oh, they're throwing up the white flag, they're giving up on the season, which I felt like, especially in that clubhouse, that would have not been received well. And I also believe that in the fan base, that would have not been received well. So I just feel like he was in a really difficult position when it comes to that. That's why they were hoping, and that's why the Marlins put it out there, like, they're asking for way too much for this 38-year-old hitter, right? Well, the reason is because Haim needed this to be a ridiculous offer that the Marlins made for a 38-year-old Justin Turner. So it's like, okay, there's no chance the Red Sox could pass up on that. Because I guarantee you, if you inject Haim Bloom with true serum, he would have liked to make that move to get a young pitcher Edward Cabrera into the organization. He's all about like long-term stuff and building up the farm system. You think Heim Bloom didn't want to make that move? That was the pressure that he was getting from the organization. So we can look at it and say, hey, this is all Heim Bloom fucking this up. I just don't think that's completely accurate. Now, like I said, his problem at the deadline was he didn't do anything, right? He didn't go for it or he didn't sell. That's his issue, right? So either go buy, get an arm or sell. He did neither, right? He didn't move on from Turner, as we mentioned, and I totally understand why they didn't move on from Turner. But if you're not going to move on from Turner, then you have to go and they didn't want a rental. Remember, we talked about it at the deadline. They wanted to make it that, hey, we're not getting a rental. If we're going after a pitcher, it's going to be somebody with control. So they didn't go after the Jordan Montgomery's, who's given the Rangers 47 and two thirds innings with a 359 ERA. That's the guy that I wanted. I told you at the time, Lance Lynn, not pitching great in Los Angeles, right? A 460 ERA, but he's given them 47 innings. And you start to think about the Red Sox, right? What did they need right after the deadline? They just needed innings. Remember the whole, we talked about the Bear Claw game. They didn't have enough innings out of their starting rotation. They just needed innings. It wasn't like they needed a big splash. They just needed a pitcher to give them innings to try to keep them relevant. So that's where Bloom fucked up. He didn't choose a direction either way. He just sort of essentially sat out the trading deadline. Okay, so this was not to defend Bloom. You know me, I'm not somebody that's gonna defend Heimblum. I just feel like when we see that story about Cabrera, it is unfair and we gotta provide more context to that. Okay, so now that some time has sort of gone by since Heimblum was fired, it's time to look at possible replacements as I indicated off the top before I got into the whole trading deadline thing. So before we even get to that, 
My thing is the Sox need to go big game hunting. So if you look at the brand, this is one of the most powerful brands in the sport, right? It's the Yankees, it's the Cubs, it's the Red Sox, it's the Dodgers, it's the Cardinals, even though they're sort of mid-market, but they have that history. Those are the brand names. Sure, there are other organizations that are on a better run right now and that are just flat out better organizations right now than these brand names that I mentioned, with the exception of the Dodgers. Atlanta's the best right now. The Astros are an unbelievable brand, so there's certainly better brands. Heck, the Rays are a better brand in terms of what they do as an organization, but I'm talking about branding, name brand organizations. The Red Sox are higher up on the food chain, of course, than the Rays and the Astros. For example, like the Spurs in the NBA, they were the best run organization for 20 years. They were the team. But the Lakers and the Celtics, they're bigger brands than the San Antonio Spurs are, right? And this is why the Red Sox have to treat this search as if they're the most powerful brand or one of the most powerful brands in the sport. So think about what we've seen in recent history from these big name brands. So if you look at the Dodgers in 2015, they were trying to build a sustainable winner, right? So they went out and they got the best name that was on the market, Andrew Friedman, who of course he was running the Rays with essentially no payroll and he was constantly putting together winners together. Like it was amazing what Friedman was doing with the Rays. And the whole idea was, hey, if we bring him here and he's got money too, well, he can really build a juggernaut. And if you look at it, so in 2014, the Dodgers hire Friedman. At that time, they made him the highest paid executive. This is part of the branding. They said, hey, this is an offer you cannot refuse. They paid Friedman five years, $35 million at the time. Since then, the Dodgers have played in three World Series they won one and they lost one due to a cheating scandal. So you could say maybe they could have won two if the Astros weren't cheating in that series, but nonetheless, and they basically win their division every year. How about the Chicago Cubs? The Cubs had the curse, but they were still like, they were, they're the Cubs. They're a name brand, right? So what did they do? They go out and they hire Theo Epstein in 2011, the best executive, one of the best executives in the history of the sport, right? Like Friedman still won a World Series before he went to the Dodgers. Theo had won two, reversed the curse with the Red Sox and made some of the most daring moves we've seen in Major League history, trading away Nomar at the trading deadline, right? So very similar, the Cubs did what the Dodgers did. I should say it's very similar. They go out there and they decide, you know what? We're going to get Theo Epstein. So Theo comes in, he rebuilds the organization, right? Because they were in a bad spot. So they make some trades to get big time prospects in. They rebuild the farm with the Chris Bryants, the Javi Baez's of the world, the Kyle Schwarbers of the world, the Anthony Rizzo's of the world. And then they make some nice moves when they're ready to win. They go sign John Lester, who we would have liked the Red Sox to sign, but they signed John Lester to a big contract. They got Jake Arrieta right, right? So they break the curse in 2016. So they said, hey, we need a real genius to solve our problem here in Chicago. They get Theo Epstein, who at that point is the most popular executive in Major League Baseball. And with the Dodgers, it was, let's get the best guy, who's Andrew Friedman. So these name brands, the Dodgers and the Cubs said, you know, enough's enough. We should be consistent winners. We are in major markets. We are historic franchises. We have the money. Let's make this thing happen. And they did it. And the Dodgers are still a sustainable winner. And the Theo thing, it sort of fizzled out at the end. But he had that team as a sustainable winner for a couple of years there, right? He turned it around. So the Red Sox actually did this in some sense when they hired Dave Dombrowski, right? They needed someone to put them over the top. And they said, okay, this guy won a World Series with the Marlins. He brought the lowly Tigers to the World Series. And he made them a consistent winner. The Sox hired Dave Dombrowski. They won three straight division crowns. And they won a World Series. And at that point, the sell was, hey, we have to 
when they decided, you know, we have to get rid of Dombrowski. It was, hey, we have to fix the farm system, which, okay, you could question whether or not Dave Dombrowski can build a farm system, but his reputation was sort of like he goes all in to win. And he did that. Like he was hired to win a World Series. He won three division championships and a World Series, as we mentioned. And he was tremendous at that. But I do think one of the things that is unfair to Dave Dombrowski and his tenure here is this sort of perception that he gutted the farm system. It's just not true. There's no evidence to that. Now, if you want to argue, hey, he didn't build up a farm system, you can argue that. Like, you can certainly argue that. But what you can argue is, hey, Dave Dombrowski just gutted the farm system. You tell me, who did he trade away? Seriously, who did Dave Dombrowski trade away? So if you look at the Chris Sale trade, which again, this helped you win a World Series, and I get that Chris Sale, this is not the, the contract extension. I'm talking about the original trade. And Chris Sale, yes, he was not great in the 2018 playoffs, but part of the reason you had the best record in baseball, best record in franchise history, is because that guy, until the month of August, was one of, if not the best pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. So that is unfair to say that he gutted the farm system because what did he give up for Chris Sale? The main pieces, Michael Kopech, ERA in his career, 435, FIP is 502, he's 27. He's just not a great pitcher. Yeah, he's got a ton of stuff. He can throw with high velocity. He's not a great pitcher. Then you look at Yoan Moncada. That's the other guy that was the main piece in the deal. Remember, Dave Nabrowski said, no, you can't have Rafael Devers. You cannot have him. Rafi was off the table. They were not going to make the move if Rafi was involved. They said, you can have Moncada. Moncada career, 253 hitter with a career 331 on base percentage. Not a great player. You would do that deal over and over again. The second contract, that's a different discussion, but it's not all Dave Dombrowski. That's also ownership because ownership, when they re-signed Chris Sale, even mentioned that they botched the John Lester situation. Okay, now another move that he made, he traded for Craig Kimbrell. Manuel Margot was the main piece in that trade. Fine player, but a 254 hitter with a guy that has moved around since he was traded to the Padres, played for the Rays, right? He's been all over the place. He's not a great player. Like, you would do that trade again when you look at Craig Kimbrell. And I know he's shaky in the 2018 playoffs, but for a three-year period, he was one of the best relievers in Major League Baseball, and he's pitching for your team. So you would do that deal again. Even a smaller deal that helped you win the World Series. We're at the deadline in 2018. Dave Dombrowski was asked, hey, what do you need? <laughs> in typical Dave Dombrowski fashion, he said, we need a right-handed complement to play first base. To platoon with Mitch Moreland, they go get Steve Pierce. He wins the World Series MVP, of course. And that trade was for Santiago Espinal. Espinal's a guy with a career OPS of under 700 and a career slugging percentage south of 370. And that was an important piece for you to win a World Series, okay? So the point being with David Dombrowski, he did not trade any way, anyone away that you said, I can't believe he made that deal. Look how bad this looks in hindsight. He didn't do that. And... <laughs> Some of his guys, Tristan Casas, like that guy, he's been the best hitter for the Red Sox this season. That's just the reality. He's been better than Rafael Devers. Brian Bale, unequivocally, has been your best pitcher. And we have now seen Rafaela up at the big league club. Those are three guys that are going to be very important pieces of this organization for the foreseeable future. Those are Dave Dombrowski guys. So yes, you can say, you know what? They didn't build up a great farm system, but he hit on a couple of guys and he didn't gut the farm system that whole perception. But the idea was, after 2013, things sort of got wobbly for this team. They finished in last place in 14, last place in 15. You needed someone that could build a big league club, especially considering you had a good farm system. Remember, when Dave got here, Dave Dombrowski, he had a great farm system. And you needed Dave Dombrowski to do the big league stuff, and he did it. And at the same time that he did it, he didn't gut your farm system, right? Ownership knew at that point, hey, 
we need a known guy. So they go out and they get Dave Dombrowski. And doesn't this situation right now feel awfully familiar to where the Red Sox were at back then in the 2016 time period, right? The organization, by moving on from Bloom, is at least acknowledging winning is important again. And maybe that is the bottom line as well. What a concept. This team should be trying to win. If you listen to that press conference, and we talked about it a little bit on the Thursday pod, but Sam Kennedy continually said that this fan base deserves playoff baseball. And it felt like they finally realized how bad the brand was right now. Depending on how much blame the ownership wants to take for Mookie, I'm sure what they're trying to do, and Bill actually talked about this on his pod, they're trying to pin the whole thing on High Bloom. But nonetheless, that looked bad. And not being in the playoffs and not being in the mix, it's become tiresome, right, for the fan base. And like in 14 and 15, the Sox could easily, they finished in last place, right, two years in a row. And if you look at this year, they could easily finish in last place again, as we alluded to off the top. So that's going to mean if you do finish in last place, three out of the four years with Bloom, you have a last place team. So the, the issue here is Heim had enough resources to put together a good major league product, and he proved that he couldn't do it. But now that your farm system is built up, just like when you hired Dave Dombrowski and your farm system was built up, you need to go get your guy. This is where the Red Sox need to flex the brand. So from my perspective, the guy is Chris Antonetti, the president of baseball operations for the Guardians. Now, Cleveland, here's the important thing. Cleveland.com is reporting that Antonetti is happy with the Guardians and he's staying in Cleveland. Okay, so my counter to that would be, that may all be true. And we've seen other teams try to get Antonetti in the past and he said he's happy in Cleveland. So make him an offer that he cannot refuse. He has been the president of the Guardians since 2015. Executive of the year in 2022, since 2016, the Guardians, and this is the important thing because wherever the Red Sox struggled recently, pitching, the, and well, in defense, of course, too, but that's a whole different story. The Guardians are third in ERA, 375 since 2015, behind only the Dodgers and the Astros. This is in Cleveland. They are third in ERA during that stretch and in the American League. And remember, we just got the DH in both leagues, right? So this is really impressive. And think about all the guys from Kluber to Carrasco to Clevenger to Bauer. And I know Bauer has his issues off the field, but he's a great pitcher for Cleveland. Savali, who they just traded, of course. McKenzie, like this is what they've been doing. They're great at identifying pitching. This is the guy that I want. A guy that has made the Guardians a consistent winner. Like the Guardians are more often playing in the postseason than they're not. Like this is a really impressive organization. It's a really impressive thing that Antonetti's been doing there. And remember... Tito is done after the season for health reasons. So if I'm the Red Sox, the pitch is, look, you've done as much as you possibly can do in Cleveland. You're never winning a World Series there. They got as close as they possibly could when they lost to the Chicago Cubs. And you could argue they should have won that World Series. They're not getting back there. The ownership is not going to be willing to spend like the Red Sox are willing to spend. So if you actually want to win a World Series, you need to come to a market like Boston. That's the sell. That's the guy I'd be going after. That's the guy where he's a known guy. Okay, Red Sox fans are going to be pumped if you get Antonetti because everybody knows who he is. He's been really good in Cleveland. And I guarantee you that Terry Francona would say unbelievable things about Antonetti as well. So you're looking at a situation where this is an easy win for the organization if they can get him. But this is the problem. Like, this is a challenge to go get a guy that says he's staying in Cleveland. You have to make the sell. This is where you want to be. This is where you want to win. This is what the Red Sox should be able to do like the Dodgers did. 
like the Cubs did, sell him on Boston. Okay, and by the way, he has local ties from the area, right? Then if you look at, another, if you can't get him, the next guy on the list would be Brandon Gomes from Fall River. He's with the Dodgers right now. Originally, their pitching performance coordinator has moved up the organization. And since he got to the Dodgers, as I mentioned, he started as, and he's from Fall River, by the way, he started as a pitching performance coordinator. First in ERA during that stretch at 319, Houston is second at 357. That's how much better that they've been than Houston during the stretch. That how, that's how good that pitching has been. First and FIP during that stretch as well, okay? And think about it. They've done it in a variety of ways. They've brought young guys into the organization, the Dustin Mays, the Walker Buellers, the Julio Ureases, but they also made big trades, like going after the Max Scherzers of the world. Bullpen is always stacked there. And young guy, and he's been working under Andrew Friedman, right? Where you look at a guy that has dealt with both things, right? Like Heim Bloom had only dealt with the small market stuff when the Red Sox hired him, right? Like they knew that he was going to be good developing a farm system. But the difference with a guy right now like Gomes, he's been with the Dodgers when they made a trade for Mookie. They traded for Max Scherzer. They signed Freddie Friedman. Like he's been really good at that organization, I should say, where he's working under Friedman. They've been really good at both building up a farm system, and secondarily, building a great major league juggernaut, knowing when to put the chips in and when not to. So that's the other guy that I would be interested in, is because he comes right from Friedman, and he's actually worked with Friedman with the Dodgers, not just the Tampa Bay Rays. Antonetti, to me, is the easy sell. With Gomes, you have to start leaking out stuff, right? Like, you got to get stuff out there, like some of the key moves that he made, like stuff the Dodgers give him credit for, to try to get the fan base excited about Gomes and I would be like that would be a good hire to me as well just because of as I said the experience right but the thing that sticks out to me about this whole process is if you can get one of these two guys and there's going to be a lot of names you've already seen them surface I hope it just pays off in another World Series and I'm confident that they're going to get back to winning now because they're actually acknowledging like hey we should start to give a fuck about our major league team again which hasn't been the case over the past few years right and look I thank Heim for what he did with the farm system. Great job. And whoever takes this job over, I kind of alluded to this the other day, they're inheriting a great situation in terms of what you have at the farm level. But Heim was so inept at the big league level, right? If he was just mediocre, he would still have his job right now. So this next guy that comes in, and I gave you my wish list right there, whoever comes in next, they got to get the big league stuff right. And to me... That's the much easier sort of part of the job, right? Like what Dave Dombrowski did, and Dave Dombrowski was great at identifying the guys that he could trade, but that's the easier part of the job. It feels like a lot of the hard work has already been done for this organization, and that's the unfortunate part for Heim. He was just so bad at the big league stuff, and I do think in some sense the Red Sox just took it for granted. Like he would be good at the big league level, right? Because they felt like, and they were right on this, they felt like, okay, if he comes in, he's going to be good in terms of, rebuilding the organization from a farm system perspective because we saw what happened in Tampa. And he was good at that. And he has been good at that. Baseball America has the Red Sox up to fifth in terms of their farm system. So he deserves credit for that. But I just think they assumed that, okay, if he can do that, he should be good at the big league level. (laughs) Their assumption was it couldn't have been more wrong. The guy was absolutely atrocious at building a big league club. But I'm excited to see what the Red Sox do next. And I'm excited just for the fact that it does feel like the Red Sox in 2024 should be competing. And I know from a Red Sox angle on this, like that should be every year for this organization. 
But it does feel like at least there's finally urgency that they're going to be back to being winners again, and we'll see who they end up hiring. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope.